Where's David? I just saw him a second ago. Huh? Oh, he, oh, he went to the restroom up. Just wanted to announce that in front of the whole church. <laughs> Trudy appreciates that. I was going to say something about God loves coffee because he brews or something, but he needed to be here for that. And that's an old one, but it doesn't stop him. He'll go for it too. I was surprised. I think that he gave a whole shepherd's blessing without a dad joke. Jeez. I w- I'm not going to lie. I was disappointed. I know some, some of you all may not have been, but so that's why I had to, that's why I had to say that. I had to start it. I had to, had to get, get, get them rolling. Oh, how are y'all doing this morning? Woo, yeah. That's awesome. I was on vacation last week, so that was great. I always loved vacation. That was, it was kind of nice to not think or have a lot of responsibility other than preparing this message, which, geez, Hebrews is kind of like, it's pretty serious, huh? I heard that Greg, he fumbled a little last week, so I have to pick the ball up as well, which kind of stinks. Typical Greg. Jeez. Um, no, actually, I was going to listen to it, but it wasn't on the podcast, so I didn't, um, which I think it would have been great. Honestly, I'm sure he did a fantastic job. I hope that I don't like say a bunch of stuff that he said. I don't think I will, because I think he fo- mo- mostly focused on the intro and gave himself four verses. So that was, we got a lot more than four verses today. Just get your cushions out. We're going to be in it for the long haul this morning. What do you think? (laughs) Whoa. Just uh, put my nose into that right there. I get my nose in it a lot of times, right, Deborah? All right. So before we actually get started and roll with Hebrews, the title of today's sermon is super cleverly, probably the title that's in your Bible, um, something about Christ's superiority to angels or the Son's superiority to angels. But before we dive in and we look at that, I hope to maybe put us in the first century, because I think it's very easy for us, and I think I've done this before too, reading this exact passage and went, oh yeah, Christ is more superior to angels, great, of course. Move on, what's next? What is he going to say next? But to actually put yourself in the first century and also imagine yourself being a Jewish Christian in particular. So imagine that if you were a Jewish follower of the way, that you are Jewish, your parents were Jewish, their parents were Jewish, their parents were Jewish, their parents were Jewish. On and on and on and on and on. And now you find yourself believing in this Christos, this anointed one, this Messiah, saying, okay, I'm believing that he, this prophet that is the anointed one, is God's Messiah, is king, this Jesus of Nazareth is him. Saying that and believing that and walking in that, could you imagine that tension? Because I don't think we understand how deeply rooted Jewish culture is, whether you are religiously Jewish or not. Like, for us, it's so different. Like, there are many people today that are Jewish that would say, I don't believe in God, but I still am kosher, and I still keep festivals and the feasts and different things like that. Why? Because that's my heritage. This is who my people are. We don't really have that here much in America, do we? Like, our major holidays, you know, the ones, let's see, the one, you know, we've got 4th of July coming up. We've got, there'll be Labor Day. I don't know if someone said that's major, but you have, you know, Halloween, and then you have Thanksgiving, and you have Christmas. And, I mean, to be real, like, even Christmas, Greg will agree with me, isn't really much of a Christian holiday. If we're, if we're talking about, in America, the way we all celebrate, not that it cannot be Christ-centric and Advent can't be super important, but it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a follower of Jesus or if whatever, whoever you are, you still celebrate Christmas and you put up a tree and you give gifts and you do things like that. But could you imagine being in the first century and every bit of who you are is wrapped up in being Jewish? And now you're grappling with tough questions? Like, okay, now that I follow the way, um, how do I treat the temple? How do I treat the time of prayer? What do I eat? Should I eat this? Should I not eat that? What parts of the law do I follow? What parts of the law do I not follow? Not only that, you've probably been ostracized very possibly and probably from family, from friends, from people who are like, dude, what are you doing? 
or what are you doing? This is, he was not the Messiah. He died. Did you not see him die on a cross? Or did you not hear that he had died on a cross? Like, I don't know if, have, have you ever switched, has any of you switched, like, religions from your family's religion? Yes? A few? There? Like, there's, there's, I understand, I mean, I don't understand, excuse me, how painfully difficult that that probably is. I know that when you switch um, teams kind of like, I was Baptist and now Methodist or was Church of Christ and now I'm this and this, that even that can be extremely painful. I know that from experience. I know that from my family. I know that uh, one side of my family grew up Catholic and whenever my parent that was on that side left the Catholic Church, it was bad. Like, it was, we are Catholic, right? Like, it's not just like, hey, you made a faith decision here. It's like, this is who we are. You've turned against our family. So the Hebrew writer is writing to people who are experiencing this, who are experiencing being ostracized, who are experiencing an identity crisis, probably, of who am I? And there is going to be the temptation, as there often is in those situations, to kind of go back to what's normal to go back to what's safe, to go back to what you're used to. And in particular here, we're going to see that this is one of the points of why he's bringing up what he's bringing up today, was to remind them what they believe in, how incredibly important it is, and how important it is that they continue to stay the course, right? Because how many of us, it is easy just to go back to what we're used to. I've done it this way, my family agrees this, this and that, and go, all right, let's go. And so this whole argument that he's going to make about the Son or the Christ being superior to angels has a lot wrapped up in it. In fact, go to the next slide. Not only does it have this idea about Christ being superior, it's not just simply to angels here in Hebrews and Galatians. There was an idea that the angels actually delivered the law. So as we build in Hebrews, he, he just builds up on an argument on an argument. I don't want to spill beans for other people, but we'll see the superiority to Moses and kind of the law and all these different things and the new covenant, and he'll touch on all the, a lot of these things. But today, not only is he saying he's superior to angels, he's saying that because he's superior to angels, him coming in the flesh and in person, not just sent through messengers, that that way is superior to the delivery of the law, which is a big deal. And again, it's a reminder to stay the course. Now us, again, I said in America, you know, how much do we think about angels? Just what do you think? I don't super think about them all that much. Like angels, demons, like that's one of those things where like, I think of demons probably more than angels because I'm like, dude, that person, man, I'm not sure. I mean, they cut me off in traffic. I don't know, God, out in Jesus' name. Just, just kidding. But those are things that, like, not, I do think about them. I, I do kind of wrap my mind around them here and there. But, I mean, for the most part, I, it's just kind of an afterthought, maybe, in, in the faith walk. And so, but our culture, I just want to do this to wake you all up if you're getting tired. But you're not. You're, like, fully engaged and super excited. Our culture does have times where we focus on angels. When I flip the don't, next slide yet, first three people to name these three shows or movies I don't usually do stuff like this, but I just, it just, I just, it just came to me as I was driving, riding home yesterday. Uh, 80s and 90s. Okay, go. <laughs> you guys already said them all. You, that was fast, wasn't it? One on the right? 1990s. Like right whenever Angels in the Outfield was out. This is, that was, was, I think they had nine seasons, but I didn't know that because, I mean, I did watch it, but I just looked it back up. Touched by an angel. You didn't watch Touched by an Angel? Oh, my gosh. I, it, it is interesting how we do get fascinated with this kind of stuff sometimes, our culture. Whether, you know, when we pray, oh, God, please let this Hail Mary pass go in. We're thinking maybe, hey, they did it in Angels in the Outfield. Maybe they'll do it for UT because, Lord, we need it. That one game against Georgia when Jawan Jennings caught it in the end zone, I think that might have been an angel that just put the ball right into his hands. Or, like, the idea of angels walking among us and helping us, and, like, what does that look like? Like, there are times whenever we have, as a culture, got into the idea, and still do, of angels, and we explore it. It's pretty interesting, but I still think, for the most part, it is a bit of an afterthought. 
So what I want to do before we look here is remind us of honestly how important of a role angels play throughout all of Scripture, right? Like, go to the next slide. We're going to do this quickly. But think about Daniel, right? Daniel's praying, he's fasting, he's asking God, seeking revelation for three weeks, and all of a sudden, and can, I just, could you imagine that? I just still, like all these times, imagining an angel appearing before is pretty wild. An angel appears before him, it says his face turned pale and he was terrified, which is pretty much the common, you know, uh, reaction to seeing an angel. I want to remind us that, because we're not just saying, hey, Jesus appeared, like these angelic beings are powerful, they're majestic, they're, <laughs> they're, God, they're created beings, so powerful and wonderful to look at, scares the crud out of just about everybody. And that angel says to him, like, basically, there's kind of this spiritual war going on that you may be aware of, you may not be. But since you started your prayer, Daniel, this has been going on, there is a prince of Persia, there's Michael's involved, all this kind of stuff. But like, there's some spiritual stuff going on, whether you recognize it or not. Next slide. Surrounding Christ's birth is full of angels. Have you, I mean, have you thought of how much is, that they talk about angels here? Zechariah, right? Hey, he's burning incense. His lot's chosen. An angel shows up. What does it say? He's terrified. He's scared. I would be too. I mean, could you imagine someone getting communion ready in the back room, and boom, an angel shows up like that? I'm like, oh, good. <laughs> What's going on? It would scare me more than Hannah does whenever she runs up to me and tries to scare me on Sunday mornings. Whew. I'm sure they're probably a little bigger than her, and that might be, like, that's, I'm wondering, I'm wondering what's so scary about them. Like, is there, like, an aura? Is there, are they huge? Like, I've, I don't know. I wrestled with that this week just for fun. I tossed it around. But anyways, obviously they're terrifying. I'm sure if you're just somewhere alone and someone just randomly jumps, like, comes to you, it's kind of scary too. But I don't think it's terrifying and pace, face making your face pale, like that kind of terror-stricken. It's, there's something going on here. But it was an angel that delivers this message that they're going to have a son, the forerunner for the Christ. Next slide. What happens whenever Mary is being told? Right? An angel comes to Mary. What happens when Joseph is told, hey, stay with Mary because he was about to leave? An angel comes to him in a dream, and Joseph is told, hey. Last slide. What happens whenever Messiah is born and the word needs to get out to shepherds and angel shows up and all of a sudden heavenly hosts are singing songs? Like, have you really like thought about all that? Like, we might not think about angels a lot, but they're, especially around Christ and his birth, and they are everywhere. I mean, you see them like every other page or on the same page, this idea that there's angels, and guess what? Every single time, hey, with the shepherds, what does it say? They were terrified. What's the most, I don't know, I haven't looked this up, but I'm assuming the most common phrase said is do not be afraid by an angel, probably, because that's almost the opening line most of the time, meaning, oh, shoot, this is pretty scary. Hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. These are incredible beings. The argument that this Hebrew writer is going to have here is going to be striking that someone, a Jesus of Nazareth, that was a human, is actually greater than these magnificent messengers from God that actually send humanity often into terror because of how glorious they are. Next slide, please. But you may say, but that was in the Bible, that was back in the day, you know, that was around Jesus and his birth and all those things. I don't know about angels now, Later on in this letter, I just think this is such a wild, beautiful passage. The Hebrew writer brings up angels again. And in the context, he says the church of God is to be so hospitable. This, is, this cuts to my heart. We are to be so hospitable to strangers, not just our friends, not just our family, that this is what we this is what he foresees us that hey y'all are so hospitable you take strangers in you care for the marginalized for those who don't care or who are normally not sought after but the church does and you've done it so much who knows you may have actually even entertained angels like maybe there's been angels in our homes maybe there's been angels in the yard out here or feeding our friends and eating with our friends Maybe there's been angels here before. Who knows? Like, we, we don't know. But there's this idea that they're there, they're active, and they participate in God's mission. 
maybe we don't see them enough because we're not participating in God's mission enough. Oops. I don't know. I asked that about myself. <laughs> Man, maybe I've been dropping the ball because I haven't seen one. Mm. That I've been aware. They obviously can change shapes, forms, by the way. If, there's, if, it ter- if an angel terrifies people, I don't know. This was just John's random thoughts. If it terrifies everyone, then all of a sudden you could entertain one unaware, probably can take a human form that's not wild. So anyway, just, I just think that's interesting. So let's look today at this argument, this discussion, whatever you want to call it, that the Hebrew writer has. I'm going to start by reading in verse 3. I know Greg touched on that, but it kind of builds down through here. And I'm just going to start right in the middle of it. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the Hebrew writer does not say that God went any, many, mighty, mo, you get an excellent name. He said this was his right. This was his inheritance. And we see throughout the letter why. For to which of the angels, and again, remembering these glorious beings, did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. Now, there is a serious temptation for me to get into the serious weeds because this is a, a lot of Psalms, but this verse, this verse, this, 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 and like looking at the passage in its entirety, and there's a lot that you can go into. This is why Hebrews is a bit of an intimidating book to go through, especially when you're teaching a sermon and you don't have time or probably shouldn't make that much time in this type of a environment to dive into all the weeds of it. I have to kind of take a step back, but I will make mention today of the verses he is referencing. So if you do want to jot them down, if you do want to put them into your phone, um, I think it's so important that we do that. Oftentimes, whenever a writer is writing and they pull out a little bit, it's like listening to 15 seconds of a song. But when we read the whole psalm, we get to hear the rest of it and its beauty, and it just really brings out, because I did that this week with all these passages, and it was awesome. It really brings out uh, the beauty, the majesty, the, what the writer is even just saying here so much better. So um, in those first two passages, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2, are being referenced here. But his first argument is, he comes out kind of swinging pretty, pretty hard, is that this Messiah, this one that, you know, Greg has already talked about in the last days he's spoken by a son, he's already referenced it once, that this is, you can go to the next slide, uh, this is the Son of God. Now it's interesting because there are places in Scripture where humanity is called sons of God. There are places in Scripture where it's possible that angels have been called sons of God? It depends on the Nephilim and some of the interesting arguments that you could have. But there's not places where you're seeing this strong, you are the son of God. It doesn't seem like, it seems like there's something more here. In fact, in 2 Samuel 7, one of these passages is actually about David. And David is wanting to build the temple for God. Why? Because they've had the tabernacle. There's a connection back to Exodus But God says, through Nathan, you're not going to build a temple, David, but your son will. And then he goes on this little conversation. says, I will be a father to him. He will be a son. And in a sense, Solomon was. There's a sense in which that's the case. But it also gets wilder the more you read that because it talks about, and he will sit on the throne of David, and his throne in the kingdom will never end. And we know that the Davidic kingdom is not happening. There's a huge gap. Let me say that. There's a huge gap. For a long time. So it's like this idea that, like, yes, there's a son, and yes, David, I mean, excuse me, Solomon kind of is, you know, there's a sense in which he's a son of God, but there's a sense in which this passage is about something far greater. And many see that as a messianic passage about some son of God who will have a kingdom that doesn't end. And we know that Jesus fulfills that in a beautiful way. And the writer of Hebrews wants to make reference to that. And when I started thinking about this idea of the son of God, or you are my son and I'm your father, I started thinking that it's not, like, at first I thought this is a beautiful, intimate family connection. Like, wow, this, there's so much intimacy between the father and this Jesus, is what the Hebrew writer is saying, that they're so close. But I also began to recognize the connection when it comes to authority and power. 
and I started thinking to myself, imagine, could you all imagine um, picking on a kid? Who, do we have some, do we have any bullies in here? I mean, back in the day. I'm just asking. No one would want to admit it, huh? No one would. Nathan said he's a bully. You see that, Brian? He couldn't if he tried. <laughs> Did you hear that? He, your dad said you couldn't if you tried. Okay. No one will admit to being a bully, though I guarantee you by the numbers we have in here, there is probably a bully or two. Yeah. John, John Mueller. That's, <laughs> okay. I'm an introvert. Yeah, that's right. So imagine like picking on a kid or whatever, doing some things, you know, being mean, hateful, whatever, but then finding out they are the president's son or daughter. I'm pretty sure that the way that you approach that child might be a little different when you recognized, oh shoot, <laughs> this is somebody that's important. Or if you were a worker at Tesla and you find out that you were treating poorly Elon Musk's son, pretty sure you may be like, I guess I'm fired. Like, that's not really, that's not what I should do. But if you think about kings and queens and, and princesses and uh, princes and you think about their children and you, when you really look at it in that sense, you recognize there is a huge connection between being children and the power and the authority that, that, that comes with that. I believe the Hebrew writer is making that connection right off the bat. That this isn't just a son in general. This is the son. This is, I am your father. You are my son. And if that's the case, then this is a strong argument to start off with that he's far more superior to the angels because he's son of God. He carries the authority and the weight of the king, of the, king, of the kingdom, excuse me. His next argument says, and again, he will bring, he, when he brings, you can go to the next slide, his firstborn to the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. You know, the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. He now goes from this is the sun to let's talk about the angels, to remind them of who the angels are. The first reference is either Psalm 97 or Deuteronomy 32, some of the manuscripts. It probably won't make reference, maybe a footnote if you go to Deuteronomy 32, but I don't really want to get into that. But that first one, let all God's angels worship him. There's a sense in which he's saying now that this is the son. And now he makes the argument that the angels are not the ones being worshipped, but the ones giving the worship. Actually, go to the next slide. Because if we expand a least, at least a little out on that next one on Psalm 104, it says, Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. This is just like the glory of God. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers and flames of fire his servants. It's just showing the order that God in all his glory has created these angels or these messengers, but the messengers are, are that. They're just that. They're servants. They're messengers for the glorious God. And the writer wants to go there. See, there's a difference. So there's similarities. Let me, let me start there. There's similarities in if someone were to say, President Biden said something, and the White House says something. It's the same thing, right? Or the press secretary comes out and says something on behalf of the president. Super important, super matters. An argument that he's making and will make here is there was a law, there was a message, and it was given by my messengers, and that was from heaven, and that's vitally important, and you should listen. But there's something superior, and that is President Biden actually coming himself, right? It is the son coming himself to speak. Now, that carries a little different weight, right? You've heard the message. You've been delivered by angels. But now we have the son who's come. And the son has come to fully embody who God is. And now he's creating that um, pecking order is not the right word, but you know he's showing the superiority. 
Angels are his servants. Angels are to be worshipped. I mean, are not to be worshipped, are to worship. In fact, um, we, we can err on the side, I didn't mention this earlier, when we talk about angels, is we can get so infatuated with them that we start to err on the side of spending too much time with the angels and considering. And I know that I've known some people that have gotten so much into that. Paul actually, to the Colossians, I believe, cautions them on the worship of angels. And part of what Paul is, I mean, the Hebrew writer is doing here is he is trying to get them to focus and understand, let the main thing be the main thing. And we'll get to that here in a second. The next argument he makes is for the kingship of the son. Next slide. And this is, if, it, if he swung, he's swinging hard now. Because it says in verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. So he's connecting this with the Son. He's connecting the, some of these connections are interesting that he makes. And I go, hmm, I wonder why he did that. But it's great. I'm not, <laughs> you, you never, you, when I read through it, I'm like, that's interesting. Um, but, I'm, I, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That is Psalm 45. Yeah, Psalm 45. That first line is pretty striking when it says, Your throne, O God. I have seen translations where it's the throne of the God, the, the throne of your God. But the Hebrew writer is at least right now making this interesting, for sure he's talking about the son being a king. And is he saying that this is, he's God? Like, what's going on? This is, this is, what are you laughing? Are you laughing about what I said earlier? <sighs> okay. All right, I'll, I won't dig myself any deeper. Well, I won't make I won't make guarantees, but I'll try not to. Um, think of this image. I'm just going to read this again. Your throne, O God. This is what is he's saying. This is said of the Son. Is forever and ever. Talk about back to Second Samuel, the Davidic kingdom, and the line never ending. He's saying this is the Son, the scepter, the and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And he goes on to not only say this is forever and ever king, who is a king that deals righteously, not like the kings of the earth and of the world, but then he goes on to quote Psalm 102, which talks about the eternality, which it gets even deeper like, this Hebrew writer is saying, he's it, y'all. Don't forget. In the beginning, Lord, you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing. Like a cloak, you will roll them up. In like clothing, they will be changed. Even hinting towards uh, the next age and this idea of the heavens and earth being recreated. But he'll stay the same and your years will never end. And then finally here, he says, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? This is Psalm 110, which is quoted a lot. Sit at my right hand, never to an angel, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Do you see the glory of the king, of the king who is before all things, of the king whose kingdom will never end? Are not angels spirits in the divine service sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? He's not downplaying or belittling angels. He's just showing how great this son is, this king is. Again, the angels are sent for the sake of who? Those who inherit salvation. Who's he talking about? Us, those who would follow the way, those who would follow this king. Next slide. I want the right one. The Hebrew writer steps back for a moment here because this is kind of grandiose and like a lot to think about. And I think that there's at this point 
the possibility that we say, yeah, but what does that mean for us? Like, this is incredible. This is huge news. King of the universe, forever king type news. It's great that he's more superior to the angels. But what does this mean for God's people? He gets kind of pastoral for a moment here. And he says, therefore, so therefore, in light of all this, we must pay greater attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away or float by. Or float by. There is, I think we can maybe relate to this. Because we know with the Hebrew Christians, again, we can recognize that they very well would have that temptation to kind of go back to what they've always known, to what's safe, to what their family and some of their friends are following or whatever, and just kind of cruise back in, just float on back. But I think we can relate to that as well, can we? Like, there is the temptation to surrender to Jesus and call him our king and do all these things and then kind of go, and put it in kind of neutral. He's being very, he's saying that we must be very intentional. We must not pay attention. We must now pay greater attention in light of all this. And I think about that, and I think like to myself, it might be like, who's floated down an inner tube on a river? Anyone done that? Yeah, I know you got it. I know, Matt's, yeah. Or a kayak, right? Like, without an anchor, I can't fish in a kayak that's got a pretty big current because what's it going to do? Just kind of send me on down. Maybe anybody sailboated? I'm just trying to think of things that don't have motors. No one sailboated in here. Dean has. Okay, okay. Trudy has. Okay. I haven't. Did we do that in Israel? Were we on a sailboat? We were. Yeah, I've been on a sailboat. That's pretty cool. But this kind of image I was getting as I was reading through this was just imagine being on a, a sailboat or a float or whatever you want to imagine that you're on. And there's this island. And this island is Jesus and his kingdom and his glory and his majesty and all these things. And there's the temptation to sail up to that island and be like, wow, this is great. This is pretty cool. I, I, th- I think I'm into this. But over time to decide you're going to go and get in, get in a float just right by the coast, you know, and just unintentionally the current starts to take you away because you're not paying attention. This is kind of the idea if we get to the bottom of the next part, it says, how can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Let me just read that. For if the message declared to the angels proved valid and every transgression or disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What is neglect? Who has neglected their flower beds? That was the first thing that popped into my mind. Yeah, because we did pretty good this, but we neglected it sometimes. My wife does better than I do, for sure. All of a sudden, you're not, it's just that you're not, it's not that you don't care. Maybe you don't, because if you did, you would actually do something about it. I don't know. We could, we could have that argument. But after time, it starts to grow and, and all that stuff. So there's this kind of idea of if you're not careful, you just begin to float. And you're floating, and you're floating, and you're floating away, and you might find yourself have drifted away from this. What the Hebrew writer is saying is even think about that in light of like the angels and stuff and different things that we could get focused on or float away to. There is that temptation also, is there not, from the, to, remo- to get away from the centrality of Christ and go to what's cool and what's neat or whatever. And like, hey, I heard this teaching over here. This is kind of interesting or whatever. But the Hebrew writer is saying, set your sails. If you have a motor, put your motor on your boat. Sail to the island. This is where you camp. This is not where you camp. This is where you make your home. This is central to everything. And because it's so central to everything, we all must pay great attention and be extremely intentional in the way that we live. I could go on a whole thing about Christ and his kingdom and what that means, but that is the bedrock. That is the foundation. That is everything. Hebrew Christians do not forget Hebrews, do not forget this. This is how important it is. It's, it's not um, sexy. It may, may not be to some people, if I can use those words. It may not be, like, it's, it, that's the way that our culture kind of goes sometimes. Like, it doesn't matter. 
this is it. This is him. This is what it's all about. It's all about him. That's why he says, listen, if the mess is declared through angels, what I was talking about earlier, the mess, the belief that the angels actually gave the law was proved valid with every transgression or disobedience. So if basically if you were if they were penalized because of what they did wrong under the law, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Like this is strong language. I think sometimes we have the temptation, and I'm not it's not here to scare the temptation to put the warm blanket of God's grace on us and go to sleep. Instead, the writer is saying, hey, hold up a second. This is incredible. We can't just float past that island. We can't just get in our float and just kind of put in cruise control, and over time we're just going away, going away, going away more. Like, how can we neglect it? And then he goes on to remind them of who this was declared to and also the accompanying signs and wonders. Kind of that, like, remember... Remember at the beginning, which we can all often remind ourselves, that the beginning of when we surrendered to Christ, and man, the passion we had, and like, wow, everything changed, my life was changing, and all this, it's kind of something similar here, saying don't forget where you came from, don't forget that. This is big, this is important. I pray that we and that the church does not drift away from the centrality of this. This is of vital importance. The last kind of argument or thing that he wants to bring up here, and I'm not going to read through all of it. Yeah, let me see. Yeah, let me, let me not read through all of it. Through a lot of it. Is this idea of not only what does this mean for us there, what does this idea of Christ being central, being king, have to do with humanity, and how does that work with him, and how does that work with angels? Like he begins to inject humanity into this. Go to the next slide. It says in verse 5, Now God did not subject the coming world by which we are speaking to angels. He's going to go back to the garden. And what happened in the garden? Who did he subject creation to? Humanity, right? He subjected all things. He, subject, that he created this for us. I kind of show this picture because I just think through, this makes me recognize the vital importance of taking care of all of God's creation. Like I've been like really thinking through a lot of these things and what does this mean that Christ and his kingdom and all this stuff and the importance that he gave humanity to what did he call us to do? He called us to steward what he gave us. That meant the animals, that meant the earth, that means each other, our relationships, all these different things super matter. In fact, we do know and I've We've talked about this before, but for the age to come, what we do now actually matters to that, right? Like the way you steward things now, God is going to give jobs and responsibilities and different things based on that. And so originally, he says, God subjected all things. This was what he chose to do. And then he goes on to say, but somewhere he has testified. I love this passage. It's just incredible. What are human beings that you are mindful of them? Or mortals that you care for them? You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. That's Psalm 8. But he goes on to say that God had initially subjected all these things to our stewardship. And if you read Psalm 8, it just talks about the glory of God, and it just makes you go, I mean, do you ever sit back and go, why us? It's kind of what the, the psalmist is saying, like, how? Have you seen the majesty of his creation? Have you thought of how great God is and his glory? And how, who are we, right? Who are we that he would be mindful? And yet, he says that he has subjective, had subjected all things or had to under us. For a little while, he made us lower than the angels. So we see that. Angels and all their glory and stuff. For a little while, he has put us under the angels. Now, in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside of their control. That was the original intent for us. But, because of rebellion, all this stuff, it says, as it is, we do not see everything in subjection to them. Right? Like, we want to till and make plants and not didn't even mean to make the connection, but we look at our flower beds and they've got weeds and it's tough and this was part of what took place. We don't see everything at the moment in subjection to us. But this is where he makes the connection to the Son. But we do see Jesus. 
He uses the exact same language that is mentioned in Psalms 8, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He brings Jesus in solidarity with the people and humanity and those who will follow him, right? Like he didn't, he actually came and became lower than the angels for us to be with us and then to represent that he might taste death for everyone. Like that's, when we put our trust in King Jesus, that's part of what we're doing. Have you ever had like, you ever made someone a representative for you? And we have with voting and stuff, but maybe you had a committee or something. You're like, David, he's going to be our representative. We just trust him. This is the decision or whatever it is, just go. This is what we're doing. We're saying, Jesus, our eternal souls are, are given to you. <laughs> we trust you. We trust what you've done. You can do it a lot better than we can. And I don't think that that, is, that can be lazy, but it shouldn't be lazy. That we honestly are saying, Jesus, here it is. And then it says in verse 10, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom all things exist, kind of going back to the beginning, uh, in bringing many children to glory should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Next slide. This is often a verse that probably brings up a lot of angst or bothers folks or what do you mean Jesus being made perfect? What, what are you talking about? You ever thought about this or? Yeah? No? Huh? What is he talking about? What do you mean Jesus always was perfect? Why is, it, why is it mentioning this? Number one, that has to do with purpose and mission and fulfillment. But number two, Jesus, okay, let me use this analogy. Um, I'll use a football analogy. Sorry for those who don't watch football. I try to use things that everyone can relate to, but I'm a Tennessee Vols fan. There have, there have been many years where we start the season and we play some small college, right? That's just not, there's no way, very little chance. Georgia State did beat us one year. Let me, let me not ramble. There's very little chance they could beat us just because we have so much money and all that kind of stuff. And for the first couple games, we just slaughtered some teams like that, right? Like it's 50 to nothing or 49 to three, you know. And you go, wow, man, Tennessee's amazing this year. They're going to be great. And then we play Florida and just get our rear ends handed to us. The reality was is that we weren't battle-tested, right, as some people might say. Like that was easy. It's easy to be good when you're playing people that are not as good as you. It's easy for me to get a lot of, you know, rejections and go around doing this to my kids whenever I'm taller than them and I can just in your face, sucker, when we're playing basketball. You know, this passage shows us that Jesus had the opportunity throughout his life to show his faithful obedience to God even when things were difficult. It's easy to be obedient to God when things are going great, when you're playing teams that you're beating 50 to nothing. Might not be quite as easy to be obedient to God when you're getting your butt handed to you like we, like we have, Right? That it's challenging. But here's the thing. If Jesus can embrace suffering, I really think the church, we have got to grow in embracing suffering. I'm not saying we go look for it and we go, hey, I'm going to be a jerk to you so that you can say badmouth me and so that I can, you know, suffer. But when suffering comes, if we recognize that this is a way for us to remain faithful to God, even when X, Y, or Z we get the opportunity to walk like our Savior, who was the pioneer, meaning if he's pioneering, we're following him, right? That's what we do. That the church is a people who have seen their Savior, has seen their king pioneer a way of being faithful and obedient to God even in the midst of suffering. And we too say, we will choose to do the same. And when we choose to do the same, y'all, it grows us, right? It grows us in character. It grows us in fortitude, I mean, how many people have we known? And, and, and I get so, I don't even like talking about this because I'm like, oh God, God, are you going to have a chance? Like I talked about it in front of everybody. I don't really want to. I mean, I'm, 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 tell, I'm not wanting to suffer <laughs> necessarily, but embracing it when it happens. <laughs> but we've all known those folks that I think Jesus is awesome, 
and we have not taught this. We haven't taught any kind of doctrine of suffering or anything like that. And when things go bad, it's like, I'm done, right? Like, there's no roots. There's no, you know, it's like, it's like Tennessee getting whipped by Florida and quitting, saying, I'm done. I'm not playing anymore. <laughs> that was tough. I wasn't ready for that. But if we learn how to embrace it, we can grow. It's the same thing as going to the gym, right? Or trying to run faster or whatever it is. It's not always fun to do. But when we embrace it, what is it? What is that saying? Something is pain leaving your body. I hate that saying. What is that? Str- weakness is pain leaving. I hate whenever they feel saying pain leaves. Pain is weakness leaving your body. That's it. Thank you. I knew we get it. So this is unity, David. We can all we can get together. Pain is weakness leaving your body. But I I don't I don't like. But I'm just saying like as we grow, if we want to see growth, there has to be resistance. And he pioneered that, and he showed us that. And he showed us faithful obedience even, in there is, even when there is resistance. And then he goes on to say, for the one who sanctifies, we're, we're pretty much done here. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters or brothers. Isn't that amazing? I will proclaim. This is what he says about Jesus. This hits me, man. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. I just think back to we're saying who are human beings, that you're mindful. I feel like I can relate to that a lot better than Jesus being proud to call me his brother. That's, it's, <clears throat> and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. That's Psalm 22, by the way, and then ends with Isaiah 8. Let me just finish by reading this out. Since, therefore, the children share the flesh and blood. Go to the last slide. Isn't this very familial? Like whenever you're reading this kind of end of this passage, beginning with father and son, and then bringing his followers, those who would put trust into that. It's, it's why the story of the gospel, the story of the kingdom is the most beautiful story ever told. That we're actually brought in, that Jesus says we're brothers, we're sisters, that we are called children, that we're not just isolated people standing around. That goes back to what David started the sermon or the time together with unity and coming together. And it's not through us, it's through him. He accomplishes that when we're humble and we submit ourselves to him. Since therefore the children, again, another word, a familiar familial word, share the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same thing so that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Isn't that, that's, isn't that incredible? We still die, but there's no fear. That's what he says. He says he has destroyed the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect. So this is why he became a little lower than the angels for a time. Why? so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the servant of God, so that he can relate, so that we can't say, well, God, you didn't really, you know, you haven't gone through this. You can't be merciful. It's harder to be merciful when you haven't gone through something, a whole lot easier to have mercy and grace when you've gone through the exact same thing. It's a lot easier to be hateful and quick quick to judge whenever you haven't gone through something, but as soon as you've gone through it, you go, wow. A faithful high priest in service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for sins of the people because he himself was tested by what he suffered. Jesus was tested. He was tested by sufferings. Because he was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested so that when we go through testings, when we go through sufferings, He's able to relate, and he's actually able to help, and he's able to be merciful because he's gone through the same things. And that's more, I know, up at like the crown of thorns and stuff, but Jesus' life had a lot more sufferings than just than the end. And I wouldn't say just the end. That was wild. 
But think of all the people who were backstabbing him and the people who were trying to get him to trip up and all these things that were taking place, and yet he continued to remain faithful and obedient to God. So what do we do with all this? What, did he, what were we exhorted to do at the beginning of chapter 2? Pay greater attention. Be intentional. There's a new way to live. There's a new dedication. There's a new way for us to walk in light of the king and his kingdom in this pioneer who pioneered this path of salvation through sufferings and is our faithful high priest. And I don't want to go further in that because that's going to be talked about a lot more later on. But he kind of gives us a snippet of what's going to be addressed. And he's saying, Hebrews, don't forget what you have. Don't drift away. And that would be my encouragement today, would be for us to not forget what we have. Maybe some of us have. Maybe some of, we go, man, maybe I have been kind of floating in neutral or kind of going down the river. Maybe I just need to, maybe I do need to focus my attention and recognize the glory of his kingdom and who he is. There's so much. It's so beautiful. Let's just pray. Let's pray. Father, um, man, I love your word. Um, Thank you for Thank you, man. Thank you for just all that you've done. I, I hate when I say cliche phrases like that. It just seems so cliche. But sometimes, whenever I'm struck by this much incredible truth and honor and beauty, I just don't know what to say. But thank you for what you've done. I, I just, Father, I pray that in our hearts, Holy Spirit, that you would work this word that it would not just be something here that we hear a little bit today, but like this rattles within us, that we struggle with it, uh, that we wrestle with it, that we allow it to do its work within us so that we can, can we do or so that it, we live this out. Help us to struggle together and wrestle together with what does it mean that you're king? What does it mean that you've pioneered a way of salvation? And what does that mean as those who were initially given everything in subjection to us? What does that mean in light of the age to come? And what does that mean right now for our neighborhood here? What does that mean right now for our coworkers and our wives and our husbands? And oh, There's so much. Holy Spirit, just... Please help us to be attentive to your voice and what you're speaking to us, not just individually, but us as a family. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.